that you're born an Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born an Italiano, and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. Your mama's a paisano. You will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born an Italiano, and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Power Hour. And uh, today you've got a real special day with us because we're be- taping in Jersey. We're yeah, so we're in Jersey. We finally have arrived in civilization. That's right. We're at the height of civilization here in Rutherford, We've New left Jersey, Manhattan. Yeah, we're out of the city, and it's just uh, it's just Pat and I here with you today. I'm your moderator, John Viola, and Pat O'Boyle is next to me. We are not. It's not just us. We have a very we special have a very special guest, guest from our Power Hour panel. It's the two of us. With a guest who has been incredibly patient with the Italian American Power Hour and been around what we're doing from very, very early on in this experiment, and unfortunately, through historical circumstance, has waited this long to be a part of our panel. So, Pat, you want to explain why? Steve Marella, who is here, is an accomplished attorney, an accomplished Italian American, and now in retirement from the law practice, has embraced the true passion of your life. Would that be correct? One of them. And, which is, uh, Steve is an artist and Steve is a painter. Steve and I know each other through Unicol Circles, which is an Italian-American service organization, for those of you who don't know. And Steve is very, very passionate about being an Italian-American. And a great deal of his art is based on that passion and it's on Italian-American themes. So Steve, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? First of all, thank you very much for having me and for having me back. Uh, they always say good things come to those who wait. So can I just jump in on what happened? We had a we had taped <laughs> probably the great the greatest episode we ever did over Christmas time with Steve and another guest. We were so excited. Rosella was there, and John goes home to edit it. And what happens, John? I have never encountered. I don't even know what the file turned into, but our audio file was basically. We, we I think we did about two hours and forty five minutes of raw audio. And uh, somehow either I pressed the wrong button or saved the wrong format, and the first two hours and 15 minutes were basically white noise, and then the last half an hour was audio. So I could not put out the last half an hour without the first 215. Because that's all luck. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But the beauty of it is, at the time we were promoting Italian-Americans who had followed their passions in life and had businesses that were correlated to it, and we were hoping to generate some buzz around the Christmas season. But now we have the ability to promote a show of Steve's work. And let me tell you, he is an exceptional artist. I have one of his works. It is absolutely stunning. As do I. I have a, yeah. Yeah, they're fantastic. So why don't you tell us this? You have a great story. Your father was an artist. Yeah, my father was a sign painter. Carmine, his nickname was The Sarge. Everybody knew him as The Sarge, Myrella. Uh, born and raised in what we call Down Neck, Newark. People nowadays call it the Ironbound section, but we never called it that. We always called it Down Neck. Uh, he was, in my humble opinion, the world's greatest sign painter. He was just wonderful, knew every aspect of his business. So I grew up around paints and brushes and thinners and all that good stuff. He loved what he did. 
I started drawing and painting as a youngster, and uh, you know, in high school and whatever, uh, was I guess generally known as somebody who had some artistic ability. But came college, though I had some excellent art courses in college. The message that I got was, we ain't sending you to an Ivy League school to become an artist, so <laughs> you got to find some real work to do. Anyway, make a long story short, I became an attorney over time. You know, that, that was such, I mean, if you go to Italy, some of the, the great things about Italy are families have been in businesses from time immemorial. Yeah. And I think that there's a genetic component. Certain genes run in families. Yeah. I think probably science is proving what the gut has told us for, for millennia. And certain talents run in families, right? So in Italy, you had, you know, fathers were great composers, sons became great composers. But you have multiple generations of people who had these fantastic talents, and the families became known as woodworkers or anything, shoemakers or painters. But, you know, one of the different aspects of the American experience is get that diploma and get that job. I think that was so much part of the 50s. Well, the American dream was yeah, to, American was to dream, move absolutely. up. I mean, you if you look back in Italy, you see that, you know, sometimes people's professions or businesses became their family names. Yeah. I mean, it's not sure. unusual yeah. to see, you know, people with names that are associated with professions and, and, and things that they did. Here, the American dream was to move up. Your father was born down at Newark. Yes. Your father encouraged you to go into a, a, a white-collar profession. Yes. And John and I have had this discussion, and I don't know what, what your feeling is, is that the first American-born generation pushed very hard for that. With the Italian-born generation was, I'm going to have a grocery store so that my sons can have a grocery store. I'm going to have a shoemaking business so that my sons can have an even bigger shoemaking business. The Italian-born immigrants who came to this country, maybe because of the social class of Italy, because in Italy, if you're a shoemaker and your kid's a shoemaker, your grandson is never going to be prime minister. And he's never going to be the mayor because Italy has such a a tight and concrete social system. But I I feel that the American-born, like like your your father, they saw that their kids could get that white-collar job that could give them the opportunities, the experiences that a sign painter couldn't have in that time. Well, even though you had... My my grandfather was not a sign painter. My grandfather was a paint maker. And... You know, my father became a sign painter, even though his father wanted him to work more manual labor to start making some money. That was kind of his compromise to be around the paints and the artwork mm-hmm. and stuff and do it. But um, it's all part of that assimilation curve that was very strong back then. If you were the child of an immigrant, the pressures on you to assimilate were pretty powerful. I saw it on my mother's side of the family, too. Just by way of background, my, my father's family, the Maiorella side, at some point the O got dropped. Uh, they came from uh, a town by the name of Venosa, Provincia di Potenza in Basilicata. His mother's family... It's a beautiful part of Italy. It is a lovely... I love, Venosa I, I is I a beautiful Basilicata. historical Absolutely. town. Uh, if people haven't visited, it's one of the, uh, you know, Bel Comuni in, in Italy. It's, it's, the history there is amazing. Uh, the people there treated me wonderfully. Uh, my father didn't even really know that Venosa was the town his family came from. He said, ah, somewhere around Naples. <laughs> um, it always goes back to Naples. Yeah. yeah. Well, That's probably because that was from. the point everybody, of departure. Yeah. 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 Everybody, like in Sicily, they were like Palermo. They're 300 miles from Palermo, but they're yeah. outside of Palermo. Yeah. I, I find that you ask most Italian Americans if they've not done their genealogical research or passed it on, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, my grandparents or my family's from Naples. And I often say to myself, I wish I could dig into your family tree to provide for you. Yes, 
the southern half of the Italian peninsula, sure, and Naples yeah. is probably where they left from, but if they're from anywhere in Campania, Basilicata, they'll always tell you Naples, and it's, it's kind of unfortunate. Well, actually, oh. my father's my father's mother's family was from Campania, uh, two towns, uh, Contursi Terme and um, San Gregorio Magno. Right, that's down next. I was going to, I didn't want to interrupt you when down you were saying your father. San Gregorio was San Gregorio Magno. Yeah. Um, Mount Carmel Church. Mount Carmel Church. Well, no, they weren't at Mount Carmel. They were originally oh. at Holy Rosary Church. Holy Rosary was a smaller church. Okay. The people from San Gregorio Magno were there. It was a tiny little church with a lot of history, but one of the key parts was the colony from San Gregorio Magno. Hmm. Interesting. Now, as you know, uh, I'm one of the few Italians you'll meet who was not raised Catholic. Correct. That's going to be a whole, a whole other, other episode. <laughs> <laughs> Evangelista. I, I grew up in Nutley with my mother's side of the family, which was Calabres. My, my grandfather, who was the only grandparent that I really knew, my mother's father, came from Acre, Provincia di Cosenza, and my grandmother, who passed away like two months before I was born, and I never had the privilege of knowing, but I wish I had, uh, she was from a small, charming town by the name of uh, Verbicaro. Also, Many great Italian-Americans have come out. Uh, yes. A small town with Rosetta Costantino. Rosetta is actually yes. a fourth cousin. Uh, we show up on each other's tree. And for those yes. that oh, listen awesome. to the show, we, we've talked about her a couple times. She's an author, uh, cookbook author. She's done incredible work, right? On, on oh, the magnum, the magnum opus yeah. on Calabrese cooking. Yeah. That's another she, pitch. She is an extraordinary ambassador of Calabrese culture yeah. and heritage, and not just Calabrese. I mean, she does cooking tours, trips. Her book, uh, My Calabria, is, is a work of art, not just a cookbook. And uh, right now, I think she's in Puglia. She does tours to Sicily as well, so... Rosetta is somebody to be respected and admired within the Italian community for what she does to keep her culture and heritage alive. Lives out on the, the West the, Coast. The, the books, are, I mean, the My Calabria book, go out and get it. If you're not happy with it, contact podcast and I'll eat it on air. <laughs> if, you, if you think, if you get that book and you say this book was not worth it, I will we could put me on Instagram, <laughs> Facebook. He's A little bit of marinara sauce, I will eat the book. It is the greatest book. And you should also buy... Her second book, um, Southern the Italian desserts. desserts, because I'm in that book, which is the number one reason why you should get it. Man, I didn't my, know you were in that book. Yeah, one of my recipes is in that get book. Get out of I here. I swear, yeah, absolutely. What, what recipe? Get the book. One of my grandma's recipes is in that book. So get that book. It's, Don't you want to tell the audience what recipe it is? It's a, it's a, it's a spaghetti pastiera with ricotta. Get out of here. But when we have Rosetta on, we'll, we'll delve in deeper. I'm saving yeah. that for the Rosetta episode. Unfortunately, Rosetta's father passed away recently, and he was one of the main inspirations for our cookbook. But, um, yeah, and then Joe Constantino of NIAF yes. is another great... Yes. Is he related to you as well? Um, we're trying to figure that out. Joe is an awfully nice guy, real gentleman. No, one of the best. But, you know, yeah. people kind of make fun of me and, and my love for these genealogy sites and the ones that run on DNA. And my mother has come up with very, very distant ancestors in Calabria, or relatives in Calabria. Now, my mother's family is all from Campania. I don't know, um, and I think San Sostri, San Sosto, which is the town next to Verbicado. My, I did get hits from that area. Hmm. Now it's very, very distant. So, you know, that part of Italy, now we see it as Calabria and Campania and Basilicata, but borders are on paper. Yeah. People are fluid. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's really amazing with this genie. I mean, I would never have thought that I had a Calabrese connection. Now, I don't know. Some of my Campania relatives might have gone there. But there's still that connection. Hmm. So where do you think, you think that your San Gregorio Manu, is that where your father, is that where you feel your painting DNA no, comes from? No, if, if I had to put a finger on one place, it would be Venosa. It would really? Be the, yes. Venosa has a history that goes back to the days of ancient Rome. 
the, the big claim to fame there, it's, it's known as the Città di Orazio. Horace, the Roman poet, was born in Venosa. Really? And when you Horace go there, is from Venosa? Yes. Hmm. And when you go there, I, I joke with my daughter, you know, because she studies Latin, and I said, you know, when you read the poems by your cousin Horace, <laughs> you know, and she, she laughs because... Uh, but uh, you have I, a right. You know what? People laugh, but you know, well, we did, you produced Horace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have every right yeah. in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, no. Ven- Venosa is a lovely place, and 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 one of their other distinguishing uh, factors is a cathedral that was under construction at one time, intended to rival St. Peter's in Rome. It's called La Incompiuta hmm. because it's left in, un- incomplete, but um, it's a marvel. So Venosa has a lot of claims to fame. So if if it comes from anywhere geographically, that's where I would be most likely to point my finger. I I, I have a theory about those areas. If you're in Tejano, in the Val di Diano, and all these towns, which had these glory days in medieval times, I think a lot of it came from the artisans that were in those areas. Oh, definitely. You know, they they made incredible uh, works of art. And I think sometimes to us, these things are a little bit rustic is probably the right Mm -hmm. word for it. But if you calculate the time and the place, what they were able to do, and what other places in the world were doing at the time, they really were much more advanced technologically and artistically. Yeah. So the south of Italy, I mean, I, I was blown away. I say this all the time. Go to the Val di Diano, go to Tejano. The cathedral in Tejano was tiny, but the works of art in that cathedral will blow you away. Where did you and I go one time? We went to a church. I think we might have been in Matera, and there were some amazing paintings I constantly find it amazing when I'm in Italy that in each part of Italy there is such a regionalized or localized style to the art and to the painting. And it does speak to how much was created in these small little centers that, that get overlooked. And I mean, just well, what they a were, wealth of art. And they weren't always small little centers. Exactly. Venosa yeah. at one time, it was right on the Appian Way yeah. and was a very important city in ancient Rome. And then even into the Middle Ages, there was the Norman occupation there. There's a beautiful castle in the middle of the town. So what maybe seemed like a small town now wasn't necessarily always that way throughout history. Yeah, yeah. That, that's I have I cousins in Matera who trace their roots to Venosa also. I think that's so, what I'm getting at. It's the idea that like you know, we, we look at these towns, that, with the exception of those who have genealogical reasons to go back, a lot of people... Don't even place them on the destination list, but they were did the best place they in were, Italy to go. Yeah, they were they absolute were so, best place in Italy. So uh, vibrant and and important centers for for art and commerce and yeah. Verbicaro in in Calabria is a very small town, maybe three four thousand people. Um, aside from the fact that I was treated so well there and ate so well there, the food was phenomenal. What's the best they thing have, you had there? Oh, peppers. They and as a matter of fact, this, this, painting, peppers, yeah. this painting of the dried peppers is directly related to that. That was uh, th- those peppers were Rosetta's peppers that she hung up to dry. Um, so we're, we're looking at a but, picture of C's painting, and we'll, we'll we'll put it on on the website for the show notes. But it's these beautiful hanging drying peppers. I'm sure a scene that everybody can recall in their in their mind's eye. But it speaks to a point about your work, right? This inspiration from who you are and your Italian heritage. I want to get a little bit back into how, after 33 years... Elani Christ. Yeah, Elani Christ. After 33 <laughs> years in legal practice, uh, how you, A, got back into art and really why your inspiration was so tied to your heritage. I mean, in your identity. Well, there, there, there's a couple of uh, responses to that, and they all sort of dovetail uh, in 2016. 
I've always been interested in genealogy. From when I was a little kid, I was tremendously curious about my heritage. Um, in 1997, my uncle gave me a box of things that had belonged to my grandfather. This is my mother's brother and my grandfather, my mother's father. And I started looking through that stuff, and I saw some old birth certificates, old passports, and a little notebook that my grandfather kept. He must have, at some point, known that somebody was going to look at the family history because he wrote in there, Io sono Pietro Rufo, I am Peter Rufo, figlio di Natale Rufo, figlio di Matteo Rufo. And and, and it it was like he knew that at some point somebody was going to pick that up, right? So I started getting into that. And uh, around the same time, maybe slightly before... It had been maybe 15, 16 years since I had picked up a paintbrush. And my son, my second son, David, I'm blessed with three of the most beautiful children I could ever have asked God for. And my son, David, who's the middle child, was taking some course, and he was having such a ball with it that I said, maybe I should do that. So I took a course. uh, This was the mid-1990s. It was an introduction to painting, which I had done a lot of painting before. But I figured, let me start at the beginning again. And as it turns out, things happen for a reason, as I've heard you say so many times, Pat. And there was a group of people that all came together at that point in time. All of us had been, you know, artistic as youngsters, etc. But then the demands of life had caused us to sort of let go of it. And it had been a long time. And for some reason or other, at that particular point in time, in that particular point in place, we all sort of came back together. And... There was a wonderful teacher there, a fellow by the name of Roy Kinzer, who I, to this day, think was the best art teacher I ever had. And we stayed with him as a group for about five years. We kept taking the introductory painting course over huh. and over again because the, the energy and, yeah. and it was, was there. Anyway, so at the time, I was working, I was general counsel to a company called Sterling Forest Corporation. We owned a whole bunch of land in New York State and New Jersey. And we ended up doing a deal with the state of New York, Palisades and State Park Commission, to sell a good chunk of that land for parkland. And to, that, to this day, it's now a state park. Um, our parent company, to its credit, had recognized that if we did things and sold off the property and they got the benefit of that, that we were putting ourselves out of a job. So they made it attractive for us to do that. And so I left there and had what, what I can only characterize as a, a gift to be able to take a year off and have a little sabbatical from the practice of law. This was in uh, 1999 and 2000. And so I had a little art studio in Nutley where I grew up and around the corner from where I went to school, I'd go get my sandwiches at the store where my grandmother used to shop. It was a lovely year. Then reality came back and I had to go back into the practice of law, so I left it again for, for a while. But when I turned 60 in 2016, I woke up one morning and said to myself, you know, my grandfather, God rest his soul, he passed away when he was 68 years old. My mother passed away when she was 69. Now, I've got no plans to go anywhere. I'm in very good health. Knock on wood. Thank, thank God. Thank God. Yeah. Um, but I woke up one morning and I said, I really don't want to spend the rest of my life doing this. Practicing law, you know, we can talk about that some other time. I don't want to spend the time that, but it, That's over the course a, of, a horror special. Over the, well, I don't know about Practice horror. I, listen, it, I, I was able to retire show. because I made a good living, but I, so, so from that regard, everything happens for a reason. I, I needed to do what I did, but I just 
needed to do something that was more fulfilling spiritually to myself. And that was just not just painting, but also spending some time in contemplation and, and what have you. So I retired with the support of my lovely wife of 40 years. We're going to have our 40th anniversary this year. She was all supportive. But when time came for me to pick up a brush again, since I had retired, I started thinking, you know, what, what kind of things can I really paint that I want to paint? You know, it was like starting all over again, sure. really. Yeah. And I did a couple of portraits and pet portraits for people that they loved. Um, and it brought me a tremendous amount of fulfillment to do that. But I also wanted to paint something for me. And I started thinking, well, what do I really feel passionate about? And the answer was my Italian heritage. You know, I studied Italian. I, I, I can speak Italian passably well. I love Italian music. I love the history, the culture, et cetera, the food, needless to say. And you'll see that an awful lot of my paintings deal with food. Yeah. All right, let's get... let's. Tell us what. Tell us about some of your food paintings. I, okay. I love. I want them. to know what the first painting you sat down and did was after you made this decision. You know, you, you here you are. You're retired. You're going to go into this part of your life. You're passionate about it. You've thought about what inspires you. What's the first thing you painted? Well, you're looking at it. The red peppers. Really? This is where it started. Wow, that's incredible. That was, I, that I mean, was and I have one. this is the painting that I have. The copy yeah. I have. Yeah, you play print. Stunning. Absolutely. You print of it. Right. Um, if you go to my website, I've actually categorized my paintings, and there's Italian and Italian-American subjects. You want to and tell the audience how to get to your website? Oh, sure. It's uh, www.stevemartworks.com. And we're going to link that from the show page uh, for those of you who haven't, are in the car, maybe not writing it down right now, but uh, it's definitely worth a look. So tell us about what, what they're going to find. Sure. So what you'll find there is a series of paintings that depict things that to me and thankfully to others evoke memories of growing up as an Italian-American um, and, and in some cases of some of my visits to Italy. The peppers hanging on the string, the, the name of that painting is Rosetta Zenzerte. Enzerte is the, is the dialect phrase for the hanging peppers yeah. both in Calabria and in Basilicata. They're popular in both places. My father, the Sarge, you could not get him a hot pepper that was hot enough. Yeah, he I don't was know how they always looking the for the hot pepper. Well, I grew up that way. I mean, I, and I remember my mother and aunts sitting on the back porch stringing up these peppers uh, and leaving them to hang on the back porch to dry. And then my mother would take them and fry them up till they were crisp and make what the Italians would call pepperoni cruschi. We just talked about I that love, not, not even a couple of weeks ago because we were in uh, we were in Italy with some friends of my dad and uh, Pat and I. Really, I think as a service of love to my dad, my dad wanted to take a dozen of his friends to Italy, many of them for the first time. So we volunteered to be the arrangers and the tour guides, and it was great. We had a great time. We went all over the south of Italy, and there was one of my dad's buddies who could not tell you where his family actually came from. It was because of lost history. And using the uh, dried and fried peppers... Pat was able to put together the few clues he had and how That's one of the greatest moments of my it life. Was, it was. It was I your, found your, his town of origin based on he what? thought he was Albanian and he liked the, the oh. pepperoni cruise. And he knew and he found it. And he found it all. And he found it within like a couple hours. Um, that, it, that, it was, that was, that was, was like his geological yeah, triumph. He was from, I guess, one of the, from a northern Basilicata town of, uh, of Abarish. Yeah. Right. It was a triumph for you. I it was, was a triumph. But anyway, that's that, another episode. So those Kruski peppers, we talk about those yeah. a lot. Now, as, as an aside, uh, you know, we mentioned before Rosetta's cookbook. Um, the cover is a beautiful photograph 
Uh, the, uh, Janet Fletcher was her photographer. The photographs are stunning. They're magnificent. Yeah. It's just a work it's of a art. Work the of whole art. book is yeah. a work of art. The recipes are authentic. The photographs are gorgeous. On the cover, the reason my wife bought this book for me, it was a Christmas present. On the cover was a picture of a pair wow, of hands. Wow, so she didn't know. She did not know. That was just, again, the hand of God. So it, was, was just, it was one of those things that you have to say was... was you know, Providential. Yeah. La Forza del Destino. La Forza del Destino is right. Uh, she she uh, bought this book for me because she thought I would like it because she saw the picture of the hands sewing the peppers together. Yeah. It was Christmas. And we got home from dinner at my mother-in-law's and I took the book and I sat down at our kitchen table and opened it up and started reading it. And I almost fell out of my chair because Rosetta was describing her great-grandfather and grandfather coming over to the United States they eventually went back to Italy, but when they came over, they lived in a building at 28 Mulberry Street in New York City. And I almost fell out of my chair because that's where my grandmother from Verbicaro and her family lived huh. when they came over. How did everybody fit on Mulberry Street? You know, there's so many people that Well, it was a brownstone it building. It was a tall brownstone yeah. building. Now it's in the middle of Chinatown, sure. but at that time, it was, oh, it was, true, clearly, true. was, yeah. Italy, it was right. clearly Little Italy. There was a funeral parlor on the first floor, and, and people lived up above. And, wow. you, know, you, you know, the way people from Italian towns all came and gathered Correct. together. So in any event... Um, so I, I reached out to Rosetta because I'm reading and, you know, finding out that, wait a minute, her, her maiden name was Dido? Hold on. That name's on my family tree. Wow. And amazing. so we went back and looked, and, and it was, like, uh, wonderful. So when I came back to painting, that was the first thing that seemed apparent to me wow. was to do the peppers. That's awesome. And I must tell you, I have since gotten a lot of very lovely feedback on that painting where people, oh, I remember my mother doing that. I remember my grandma. What was a clothesline for? People would argue who had the hottest peppers, this, that. And it does exactly what I was hoping it would do. It sparks lovely memories yeah. for people who want to be a little bit nostalgic about growing up Italian-American in an Italian family, etc. And and so that that worked. And so now... You know, I said, well, you know, let me move on. I had, I had actually, before that, done a, a little study. This was before I actually retired, though. It was uh, some beautiful red ripe tomatoes with some basil. I was just about to bring up, that's exactly what, exactly. And I named that Italian-American summer. Mm, because if I think about summer, what do I think of? You know, tomatoes and basil from my uncle's garden. You know, get some of the fresh mozzarella and a little <laughs> olive oil and some crusty bread. And you've got a feast yeah. not a meal but a feast yeah. you know so those kinds of memories are what I'm trying to evoke I am such a fan of Steve's work you are the Joseph Stella of our time uh, that's uh, no you are the Joseph that's Stella that's much too kind no, you he was Joseph, a real artist no you I are mean, you are the Joseph yeah. of our time I don't have any degrees in art right besides right. the two courses I took in college which right. I was required to take <laughs> but in my untutored perception of what you do I feel you're an iconographer because you're creating icons of our experience. Does that make sense? Okay, that I will accept. Uh, the, 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 comp the, the comparison with Joseph Stella, who is somebody that I admire greatly, is, I think, much too kind on your part. No, I, However, I'm sticking with it, but... The, okay, <laughs> thank you, thank you. But the, 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 the iconography part, um, I think that's true, because the things that I pick to paint are hopefully things that people, when they look at them, it evokes... A feeling, a memory, an image. I mean, they're not objects of worship, obviously, but... Part of the reason why I say iconography, Byzantine Christianity was very much a part of the Southern Italian experience. Absolutely. Before the Normans came. And I see Greek iconography in Steve's work. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how to articulate it, right? And I think that if we could have a, a, a Eastern Orthodox church or a Byzantine Catholic church, you'd have, you know, the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary with the peppers on the side. I mean, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's true. It's yeah. all because it's, it's the heavenly, it's, the, it's, it's like, you know, like heaven for Italian-Americans it is like a bacala sound. Steve <laughs> did up the, your work, Bacala Jambot. I look at that and that's I'm like... That's my favorite. That's it's, the, abs- it's fantastic. I mean, and the reason why I say is that, you know, it's so much comes in the iconographic tradition of the East, but also the tribalism of the south of Italy because who else gets excited over a painting of Bacala? I got who else excited. gets excited over a painting of salted codfish? If you gave me the Mona... And that's what we're Southern Italians. If you put the Mona Lisa on the table and Steve's painting of Bacala... Of the yeah, bacala, I'd rather the Of the Giambotto de Bacala. I'm taking the Giambotto yeah, de Bacala because it's beautiful. It speaks to me. It's who I am. It reminds me so many memories. I mean, it's the whole package. I have it in my office. Steve was kind enough to give me... And, and again, you'll be able to see, I'm sure, an image of the Bacala... Uh, on Steve's website. Oh, sure. When we were in my last office for what became this last episode, we were sharing some of Steve's work and it just jumped out at me. And interestingly enough, uh, I get the sense our families had very, very similar recipes, probably from Basilicata, or my family's from Provincia Potenza as well. But that was our bacala salad, and that is Christmas Eve. And that is the, I mean, my grandfather was as specific as how he wanted celery sliced yeah, and what bet. parts of the, you know, we had to keep the leaves of the set. So yeah. I go shopping now when I cook for Christmas Eve and I'm looking for the celery with the most growth on top. and. So when I got to see that in in your painting, gosh, it just jumped out. It was it could have been my family table, and that and that for me is a great comfort to have in my life, and it and it invokes a, a real feeling. Well, I have to say, hearing you guys say that is making the hair stand up on the back of my head because, it, it, first of all, it's very kind of you. Second of all, it's exactly what I was hoping to try to achieve. The reason you react so strongly to these is because it brings you back to something that you grew up with that is very important to you because of obviously what you're doing, this whole this whole podcast and everything you've done, NIAF and, and Unico and all this Absolutely. stuff is because you highly value the past. You're not limited by the past, but you respect it, it and want to keep it alive. And that's what I'm trying to do here is keeping alive memories that to me speak of love, family, but, um, I think that, it's, I think that comes through in art too. It, I think that there's certain, you know, look, you can you can go out and find art that, be it contemporary, antique, or whatever it is, that may be technically very impressive, but doesn't convey the feeling sure. of the creator. Sure. And so you can tell in your work, and obviously we all connect around your work that focuses on our heritage. But you know, I do get a sense upon sight of your spirit and your emotion behind it. And I think that's the beauty of artwork, really. And it's you talk about iconography and, like, you know, you go into these churches and those icons sort of radiate the faith and, and penitence of the, of the creator behind And they send them. a message. Iconography do, yeah. sends a message. Yeah. Your, your paintings are alive because they're contemporary, because they exist in the moment. Like, if you do a painting today of Washington crossing the Delaware, if you go to, you know, the Delaware River in New Jersey and you paint that, you're recreating something that happened definitively in the past. But the bacala salad, I could eat today. If it were Christmas Eve. If it was Christmas Eve, right. I eat bacala. I'm a bacala Once a year we make that. I eat bacala. I'm in North Jersey, so it's Portuguese people. They do fantastic. I'll eat bacala all year round, but that bacala salad is Christmas Eve. 100%. You know, if it was between the tree and the bacala salad, you don't even have to ask what I'm going to pick. As a symbol for Christmas. 
But like the, the peppers, right? If you go to Verbicado today, there's someone who's going to string those peppers exactly like the way they were in that picture. They're hanging from all the balconies. They're hanging from all the balconies. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that I think that one of the benefits of the internet is that it has put us in real-time connection with Italy, in the south of Italy. So really, especially today, you could you can watch a procession in the hometown or you could get news about the hometown mm-hmm. in real time. From when the immigrants came, the ones who came in the early part of the 20th century or the late 19th century, it was almost like there was a break with Italy, right? Because you got a photograph occasionally, you got a letter occasionally. But now people jet set back and forth to, to Italy. They jet set, they can see what's going on. And we can see that these arts that certain people have put as in a chapter of history, because well, my great grandmother did that when she came to Cleveland or she went to Buffalo or she went to New York, it's still going on in Italy. So these are very much alive present day pictures. You know, one of my your paintings I absolutely love are the grapevines. Because I've had grapevines and I know that the, the vines get gnarled. They have that gnarly mm-hmm. look to them, right? And if you go to any vineyard, be it in California or be it in Virginia or be it in the south of Italy or France, you're going to see that gnarly look, especially on old vines. And I was like, it speaks to me. It, it, it touches me. Because I guess, it's, it's like, again, it's a representation of my own experience. Right? Yeah. And it's just beautiful. You know, iconography takes the mundane and makes it special, right? It, it takes it a part of everyday life and it exalts it to what its, its deepest meaning is, right? And the grapevine, especially if you're in uh, an area that, that produces wine, it's ubiquitous, right? Mm. Or if you're in a backyard in Brooklyn, they're there. But as a part of nature, it is such an intrinsically beautiful thing. Yeah. It, and you, it, you represent that in your work. You can see the beauty of creation in this, the simplicity, yet the deep beauty in your work. My spirituality these days is tied very much to what you just described. The grapes is a great example. I did two. One was uh, Alianico grapes and the other Moscato grapes. Now let me ask you something. Alianico don't grow in the United States to the best of my knowledge. You can get some from California. Yes, you can. So is that what you did? You got Because I've seen them. I think I've seen a little bit some of the... the uh, Wine juice producers in North Jersey happen now for people to make wine in October. So did you actually buy Alianico to paint them? No, did my you brothers my brothers and I make wine. My brothers and they make really, fan, and I've had I, some. Yeah, he doesn't true. sell the wine. You yeah. can buy the painting. You can't buy the wine. <laughs> well, and the wine is very, is very good. My, my brother is the vintner. My brother Lenny is is the vintner, and he really that's his way of keeping our traditions alive. Uh, I took over making the bacala salad when my mother passed, and I'm doing the paintings. He uh, makes the wine. My other brother, Danny, is a tremendous cook. So we've all, we've all tried to keep up some aspect of our heritage. Um, the grapes speak to me on multiple levels. Uh, on the one hand, my cousins in Venosa have vineyards. They grow both Alianico and Moscato grapes. The Alianico del Vulture that comes from Basilicata is a world-class wine that, that recently yeah. now seems to be getting the kind of recognition that it deserves. All for, these southern wines for many years, you know, it was yeah. it, they they call it now the Barolo del Sur, but you know it, it is now getting some of the recognition. It's got a beautiful terroir and it's a beautiful color and and just a really good earthy wine. One Moscato, Moscato. Most people, when they think of Moscato, think of the the sweet, sparkling wines that yeah. would come from Asti and some other areas. But they make a uh, dry Moscato. The most traditional use for it is to have it with salumi, mm. and uh, you usually think red wine with meats and stuff. But no. So painting those 
grapes was kind of a way for me to relate back to my visit to Venosa, but it also recreated for me memories of growing up in Nutley with my grandfather Rufo, who made wonderful wine. He grew Concord grapes on his property. Nutley was far less developed in the late 50s, early 60s than it is now. Um, not far less, but the area where he lived. He had a good chunk of land, and it was covered with grapevines. He would, we would harvest each September. We'd all go around with a bushel basket and set of clippers. We'd all be responsible for, for collecting up grapes. Then he and my, my uncle and my father would be downstairs with the stringatur, you know, squeezing so the grapes. your grandfather was making his wine out of Concord grapes that he was growing? He, not, not exclusively. Oh, wow. He, he, he used the Concord grapes. He also, and I just learned this from my uncle the other day, he also bought grapes. But his, his wine was well known. People would come out from Brooklyn to get his wine. I never. I don't know if I've ever tasted a wine made with Concord Manischewitz. Manischewitz is, is well known, but that's that's kind of like grape juice. Yeah. Um, yeah. My grandfather's wine was not like grape juice. It was a very good, classic, homemade Italian wine. The wines that my brother makes are a little more towards the uh, wine school type wines. Although he has made the kind of traditional blend with the Alicante and the Garnacha and the and the uh, Zinfandel. And the Moscato for the sweetness. He's, he's made that. Is that but he a also makes blend for like table wine? I don't because my grandfather mixed all kinds of things. And frankly, well, I, I, I once asked my Italian uncle. I said, "What wines do you get when you go to buy the grapes for the wine?" He said, "Whatever they sell me." He says, "I know what I ask for." He yeah. says, "But what do I know? They give me the grapes and they tell me that's what it is, and I take them." You know, I tell you, that's one thing I would love to do. I mean, you know, everybody out there listening knows almost every episode. I come up with some additional activity that I want to do to engage our heritage and the people that are listening and supporting the show. But I say it a lot, you know, we made wine after we left Brooklyn, we moved to Jersey. We continued to do it in Jersey with my grandfather every year until uh, right before he passed away. And every year, my brothers and my dad and I and my uncle, we'd say, okay, we're going to do it again. And then one year we kind of tried, my uncle and I, but just wasn't the same without him. And now I think I'd love to start a club for all of those people who, who had that tradition in their family and don't have the cousins or brothers around or don't Who's have... Who's going to agree on the recipe? Well, just, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a phenomenal problem Everybody's going to be there. You know, my yeah. uncle knew <laughs> this true. and you don't know what you're <laughs> doing. Well, you got to turn it kind of... But I'll make something, though. A fair number of people have done something similar to what you're talking about. Yeah. They created these wine schools where you can go and go with a group of people. Sure, sure. And do, as a matter of fact, my brother learned some of his winemaking skills from my uncle and some from the wine school. And that's why he has taken it kind of to the next level. But you're talking about wine school for like actual wine. I'm talking about like basement sausage and pepper on the frying pan. That's what we do with yeah. my brother. No, but I mean, but he I, learned I his like... skills. He learned his skills in the wine school. And if you get your group together, you can probably do something like that there. Or, see, if you're going to do it in somebody's basement. Somebody's got to make the investment in all the right kind of equipment and the like, because it's not... We still have all my grandfather's stuff. And hopefully it's still all functional. Yes, yeah, that's, that's good, a valid question, yeah. But, and, and, you know, some of it, like, you know, my brother has some machinery that my grandfather never would have had you sure. know, to, to separate the grapes from the stems, et cetera. It does yeah, make sure. life easier. Some of that stuff years ago... Yeah, absolutely. Was, with yeah, the grinder, was, you know, was, you could uh, lose fingers in that thing. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, you know, it was it was a different undertaking, but in the end of the day, the classic mix was Alicante, Zinfandel, Garnacha, and uh, uh, either Moscato or Thompson White or something for a little wow. bit of sweetness. That was kind of the garage blend in various yeah. in various proportions. And then, of course, you take what was left and you turn it into grappa. Yeah. Which is and, a, do you uh, trust you know, that? I mean... 
I guarantee you 90%, and I'm not saying you, but just in, in general, you have an Italian-American, you drink their wine, you say, this is fantastic, what did you use? Do you think you're getting the right recipe? If you're not related to them? No. If you're related to them, you probably have a less of a choice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you're, you're freaking yeah, less. Not, yeah. not all Italian-Americans are necessarily talented winemakers either. There, that is true. There's an awful lot of homemade wine that I'm cheap. Oh, it's well. rough. And sure. actually, some of it makes very good. I actually make homemade vinegar as well. Yeah, me too. The vinegar is... Uh, the homemade vinegar is good. But, but to get wine that tastes like a really good wine, you know, my brother is very meticulous and very... Oh, he's fantastic. That, I mean, really, know? if you can become friends with Steve and go out to lunch... Go to a BYOB and make hints about the wine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... But voice it is, voice it's, of experience. It's voice of experience. Let me ask... Well, another, actually, you'll see some of the wine in some of my paintings. If you look at um, the one that I call Comunione Italo-Americano, there's a, there's a glass of uh, red wine in there. Bread is another topic that sure, I... Sure, it's sacramental. You know, Again, we go back well, to that's, And that was the, the, the point of this, you know, and, and I got the peach there because so many Italian-Americans would associate peaches with yeah, red wine, absolutely. you know. Um, so uh, bread features in a couple of my paintings. Even the, the, I guess, hash marks, I don't know what you call it, when you, when you cut bread so that when it, it bakes, it doesn't yeah. crack, you have the same pattern of any... Old school New Jersey bakery yeah. back in the day. I mean, you look at this well, that's bread. Well, I get the like, bread from old school New Jersey bakery. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny you say that because I, I, again, we have these conversations about the iconography of who we are, and, and it's peppers hanging, and you know, you talk about your father. Uh, the hottest peppers were not hot enough. And I was just talking about my grandfather last night uh, with some friends. We went out to eat with my dad and had hot peppers and. My grandfather used to say, your ears should sweat if they're hot enough. And, and, and it actually happens to people. You see feeding on their But, you know, the wine making and the bread, you know, we used to make bread with my grandfather, which in a home oven, I don't know how he got it to come out like it did. And he was so particular, and he was not in great health. So he would sit uh, in the chair in front of the oven, and he would sort of wait and watch. And there was a moment where he would ask us, okay, open it up. And, and we'd open it up as kids. We'd pull it out. And he'd just whack it a couple of times with a knife, and it was—it looked like a samurai. Yeah. And the thing would just bubble up, boop, and that was how it got that look. And I can think to that, and again, it, it's conveyed in the artwork. When no. you were in Matera, did you have the the bread there? Oh, believe the Matera bread. Yeah, he still talks about that. That's, that's worth that's the one trip. Of the things they're, the worth, they're known for all yeah. throughout the world. You know, and you know, like I say this all the time: the south of Italy has some of the longest longevity rates in the world, and they eat all this stuff. I yeah. mean, Italian Americans forget that they have a patrimony, which is the Mediterranean diet. If you go back to these towns in Italy, really, it's one of the greatest gifts we've given the world. Yeah. is really a, a healthy diet that's delicious. Yeah. I mean, look at those hot... I mean, you take those hot peppers that you had last night. Those hot peppers sautéed in olive oil with a little bit of garlic is... You can't get anything more delicious in the world. Yeah, And what could you get that's any healthier? No, it's true. And I think that, you know, we have a birthright to embrace a diet. That, that Steve shows in a lot of his art that really is really is is one of the best parts of our culture. Well, what I find interesting, Pat, is that I think people of our generation, and though I'm a little older than you, I include us in the sort of same uh, generation, but is rediscovering that. I think one of the prices we paid for assimilation was that what is now referred to exotically as cucina povera was kind of left behind, and people started eating a much more meat-heavy sugar-heavy diet because it was the American diet. Yeah. 
And I think that, you know, now go into an Italian restaurant. There are some now that are rediscovering this. Of course, the scottol and beans that my grandmother made because they didn't afford meat, now you pay $16 a plate for that as an appetizer. Yeah, you know? it's pretty Which strange. Is, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy because you have the millennial parent who's obsessed with diet, nutrition for their kids, which is all a positive thing. And in your heritage are these recipes that your great-grandparents cooked, which are the healthiest things that you could possibly be giving your kids. And something like scudol and beans, but they're looking for something outside because maybe they have a generation that lost those dishes to try to get the same thing. But you already have it. Like, for instance, my grandmother who, I, who raised me, who I grew up with, my grandmother would boil kale and just squeeze lemon on it. Mm. It's and it's the most dish. delicious thing in the world. But I was eating kale when no one else ate <laughs> kale. And all of a sudden, kale became this wonder food. And now everybody's eating kale looking for kale recipes. I have a kale recipe. Yeah, yeah. That that goes back to time immemorial. I don't need your kale recipe. Uh, you know, I, I, I own I, I, ha- I own my own kale recipe. I don't need somebody. And I'm saying like, we have ownership of this. We had kale before they had kale, but now because they've blessed kale. Everybody's eating kale. When it was an Italian-American yeah. thing, it was like... Weeds. It, it was weeds. Right? I had somebody tell me... you know. Somebody told me the other day about, oh, have you ever tried dandelion greens? And I, I had cool. to laugh because when I was a kid, and I probably told this story before, we moved out to an Irish town in New Jersey, and I remember my grandfather used to walk around picking people's dandelions off their... and, and leaves off their lawns. And somebody called my mom and said, you know, I don't know... It, your father-in-law may be showing early signs of some sort of you know mental slip because he's walking around picking our weeds and putting them in bags my mother said no no no, he's getting he's making salad you know and and that was so strange and alien to people and now it's designer food i love dandelions i do too oh, i love dandelions too. you know my best way to eat dandelions go out go to go to whatever supermarket get good organic fresh dandelions boil them just to get the bitterness out then you take if you don't want the anchovy don't put the anchovy they gotta in. Put the anchovy. i like the anchovy i make one with the anchovy love anchovy yeah you crush like a head of garlic, two heads of garlic. You throw it in some uh, some excellent quality olive oil. You get the let the garlic get a little bit translucent. Throw in uh, simultaneously um, maybe two two mm-hmm. anchovies. Let them break up. Then the previously boiled, just boil it enough to get the bitterness blanched. out. Blanched out. Squeeze out the water. Throw it in. With the garlic and the anchovy and the oil, it's the greatest thing in the yeah, world. It's funny. And if you and if you if you want to get a little bit more creative, you could throw some tomatoes in with that, uh, tomato sauce in with that, yeah. like the you know the passata in yeah. with that. Maybe some black olives. It's, it's the greatest thing in the world. The, there's no restaurant in the world. There is no Michelin starred chef that could do anything better. That's, if you do that, it right. that's how I ended up buying uh, Chigori the other day because I was going to go visit my parents and dad my brother and I were going to have a little meeting over lunch and I said I'll cook I'll go to the store and you know what do you want and all this and that and by the end of it we sort of did exactly the same thing we just did a little two anchovies a couple cloves of garlic chigoria and some fresh pasta and that was and it was just a touch of parmigiana you get chigoria macaroni yeah I love it love it just just as you would make it and throw it right in with the pasta at the end throw the pasta in at the end which shape uh, Shapes important. Yeah, Shape no, to we, make it or break we it. used uh, I think fuzid that we had on it. I don't remember to be honest. With you. It was whatever we had. My mom had in the cabinet, and I'm yeah. I'm not a shape. Did you chop? I mean, did you chop the dandelions up? First? Yes, because they get longer. Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. Chopped it up. I love dandelions in a salad. Yeah, you I were yeah, talking about the homemade absolutely. wine vinegar yeah. before. The dandelions in a salad, the homemade wine vinegar. I, I, there's you can't that. beat no. it. A crusty you can't loaf of bread. It. See, it's the simple things, and, and I've had people say to me, to get back to my paintings a little bit, that some of the things that I paint 
help remind them, you know, that they when they were growing up, because they had each other and they were around the table, a bit of bread, a chunk of cheese. I did one painting of a, a, a pecorino cheese, you know, pecorino crotonese, which is one of my favorite oh. cheeses. <laughs> and that's like that. That is on my very nothing with, I love more. With some crotone's greatest monument is its pecorino. Hundred okay. percent. It's, it's it's just it, a wonderful cheese. We got to discuss where you get it. All right, but that's okay. Uh, so. Um, uh, that with some pears and some oh, it's fantastic. And so so uh, you know, uh, I've had people say to me, you know, when I look at that, it makes me remember what it was like growing up when we were all around a table together, and when we realized that even though we didn't have much, we had everything. Yep, that's the truth. And you'll see that quote on my my, my website has actually each of my paintings. Uh, I kind of forgot to mention this, but each of them has a little bit of the story associated with it on the website, and I am very thankful and grateful that these paintings of mine are helping people contribute to holding on to some of those memories and thinking about stuff they hadn't thought about for years. But it's also the future. The Why I say the future is, okay, when you do the Chigoria painting, maybe that's coming up next, right? Well, that might be. Yeah. The Chigoria... I'm working on figs happens, right now. Figs, okay. right? And for the, for the person out there, if you buy that Chigoria painting, you hang it up. These dishes of ours are a living yeah, go back to where we came from because we have the we have such a healthy diet. When you think about the way our ancestors ate, and even our you know the, the ones who came here, it wasn't just what they ate; it's what they ate in relationship to everything else. The pasta, the bread, the greens were the mainstay of the meal. Yeah, the rest was kind of an accompaniment to that, and so you had a balance. I was struck when I traveled in Italy. I was struck by the portion sizes. Also, of course, you know, eating is a right. There, it's it, it's taken yeah. very seriously and, and and the like. It's sacramental. Yeah, yes, it absolutely is. It yeah. absolutely is. And there's something very right about that. Correct. Like I don't want to be one of those Italian snobs because that's not who I am. But I, I do always kind of get that sense when I'm there and you go to dinner and somebody wants a cappuccino after dinner. It's like you know that's not not just because it's it's foreign to their uh, their their rituals around eating there, but frankly. The espresso has a use and a utility yeah. after you eat. Yeah. You know, it's it's for a yeah. reason that you're taking it. Yeah. Then yeah. it just fascinates me, really. Yeah. That, you know how, how ritualistic it is. Can I bring that up? And um, another thing I want to bring up is I love your painting of the espresso and the zambuca. Mm. Cafe Corretto. It brings back so many memories. Yeah. Um, it's like a table at the Villa Roma, 1984. <laughs> <laughs> The Italian resort in the Catskills. Just, I see that picture, and I'm, it's it's just fantastic. It's just, again, another, you know. Well, once again, a couple of things about that picture that you wouldn't necessarily know. Um, number one, uh, those biscotti my wife makes by hand. My, my Slovak-Irish wife, who cooks better than many Italian <laughs> girls I knew growing up, um, she makes those for me every year at Christmas. That's my Christmas present. Hazelnut ah. biscotti and chocolate biscotti with hazelnuts in them. I'm, and I'm in hog heaven. The uh, cup that the espresso is in was a Christmas gift from my son. Ah. And, uh, you know, you think your kids... Always the family. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's very true, though. It's always the family. It, well, you know, and, and the whole idea of the coffee with the zambuca and the biscotti, that's a, a holiday dessert. I mean, that's that part of the holiday dessert table, not the whole thing. I always tell people, when we were growing up, we never had dessert as a structured part of our meal. We'd eat supper relatively early because my father came come home from work hungry. But 7, 8 o'clock at night, aunts and uncles, cousins were coming over. My mother was putting out cake, cookies, coffee, 
fruit. Yes, uh, you know, it's fruit so busy we Friday. Ate, we ate our share of sweets and stuff, but it was never as a formal dessert except on holiday. Yeah. On a holiday, you always had that. the dessert table afterwards yeah. after, you know, you unbuttoned your pants and you sat down and you had the... Unbutton so, your pants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blast of the pants. Right? Yeah, that, that, was, that, was, that was the last stop before the brioche. <laughs> yeah, 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 the yeah. unbuttoned pants didn't work. Then <laughs> the little this, blue uh, bottle uh, came out. To this day, I keep a bottle of brioche in my cabinet. Oh, but absolutely. you know, that was like a right... Nobody, like... I guess people of a certain age in a certain place, like they would kind of think that's kind of whacked out today. But that was kind of like the... The symbolic end of wow, we had a good time. These guys would unbutton the top button of their pants and unbuckle their buckle, and they would just lay back and our three would hang out. The we, boy would hang out, and that was like, oh, we're done. Like, Buddy, you did a good job with dinner. And yeah, that was the. I'm sure there's A-okay. people out there who don't. But I remember that it was like, oh, unbuckle your. It was like a. It wasn't like a strip tease. It was actually like a, it was a symbol. Yeah. It wasn't the whole. You didn't go for the zipper. It was just yeah. the top button. There's somebody out there who's never heard of this. It was like a maternity pant for me. Right, and then but that I, didn't work. And then and then he's all mud on. And then somebody would come out. And then we, the one person who kind of overdid it would get the brioche. In the old days in my family, in the holidays, I mean, for the men, there was a sort of a process of different stages of undress as the evening went on Correct. to where everybody would be in their dress pants and undershirts singing together by the end. Well, it got awfully hot in the house. It, yeah, everybody it was a small Between house. the cooking yeah, right. and all the, the, right. the loud yeah. talking and the bodies yeah. and the running and this and that, it would get hot. I loved that idea. I loved watching. <laughs> I loved the idea in my family. It was this look. Sometimes when I come home from work, I almost consciously do it. It's the dress pants, dress shoes, and the undershirt tucked in. And I have so many pictures of my family from the holidays. That was casual clothes. In the only ones that casual was, clothes. That was that's the true. pants. That's true. That's time. what they wore. That's the that's yoga pants. But I have so many pictures. And I remember as a kid, there's a lot of pictures of me because we would do Christmas Eve at my grandmother's. And there's so many photos of me at my grandmother's house late into the night on a Christmas Eve with my little V-neck undershirt or my little sleeveless undershirt or whatever. And... I felt like it was a rite of passage to be dressed like that. I don't know. It's just, it, it's iconography. How happy do you guys think I am hearing you reminisce about all this because you're talking about one of my paintings and it sparked your memories? Yeah. I'm, I'm just so grateful to you for this experience. So that, that begs to a great question, right? Do you, do you ever get a sense that you have some sort of um, mission around our, our heritage and culture? I mean, do, do you ever get tired of painting stuff like this? And well, no. Um, no, and it's interesting because in the years when I wasn't painting, I would try to get myself going again, and I'd stare at a blank canvas, and I'd see this big gray screen. Now I have ideas popping all the time, and it's directly related to that, that I've, I've somehow tapped into that. And I have found, quite frankly, that the harder I try to push, the less successful I am. I have to lay back and sort of let these things come together. But I've become sort of a firm believer in that, that if you're on the right path, things come together almost as if by magic. An artist is often a conduit to something that is hard for them to put their finger on, I think, sometimes. Joseph Campbell, he looks to artists now as the last bastion of the mythological and the spiritual because we basically destroyed a lot of what used to be the mythological base of our society. And that's a heavy burden for an artist to try to bear, but I'm convinced that it's not something you can bear necessarily consciously. Yeah. I think you have to let it work through you. I'm not making any great social statements with my paintings, but the statements that I am making are contributing to people getting back in touch with something that's essential about their heritage and their culture and their their, their being, their self. Yeah, it's a very profound statement in and of itself, the idea that you know something as simple as a pepper can evoke in someone a sense of safety 
and and really, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show, and, and it's a big theme for Dolores, who's obviously not here with us today, but the idea that in some sense there's a great direct line back for generations, and we're talking about genealogy, in these simple things that define us and do, even over time, remind us of that familiarity, of that safety, and in a world that's constantly telling you to chase the new and chase the self-centered fulfillment, I guess, this idea that these things can remind you that there is something very empowering in the simple and the traditional and that those that are familiar, it's a great statement. For Proust, it was the Madeleine. For me, it's the pepperoni. So <laughs> <laughs> go back to the whole Joseph Campbell discussion, like in, in Comunione Italo-Americana, if I, if, I, if I pronounce it correctly. Of course you do. Um, there's two things in there. The one thing is the Dorals, which I love, right? Because that's what makes it ours. I mean, you could have a, f- a French painting or a Spanish painting with bread and wine, but the Dorals belong to us. It's a shot of Italy. But the other thing, there's a knife in the painting. And if you, if you said someone, there's a painting with a knife in it, the, the immediate responsible, it's violence. But the knife is next to a peach. Mm. And you cut the peach and you put it in the wine, in percoque, the percoque in the wine, right? So you have, it's like beating the swords into plowshares, right? So you have a knife that's a sharp knife, but it's a sharp knife not to harm a person or an animal, but to cut a peach or to peel a peach. And I was like, we would get that. Yeah. You know, because if if you take the Frenchman, maybe the Spaniard because they have sangria, but if if you see a glass of wine, a bottle of wine, a peach and a knife... It's, it's the small knife that everybody remembers that was the fruit-cutting knife. Yeah, absolutely. It's the big knife. The big serrated knife is the bread The bread knife. knife. Yeah. But the small knife is the knife you cut the pear with, you cut the apple with, and you cut the peach with to put in the wine. Yeah. And I think there's these small little cues in your work that speak to us. You know, you put 10 people in front of that painting, put the Italian-American. The Italian-American most probably will know or be the one who does know that the painting has a peach with a knife because the peach is going to be cut. And it's going to be put into the wine, and that's what's going to flavor the wine. The peach is going to reach its highest zenith, married to the wine. Yeah, you're right. You know, yeah, and we, right. Uh, um, yeah, the tarals seem to be, tarals and cheese and cut fruit seem to be a, a strong theme in your work. They are. I mean, they're, they're, now these, this this painting, the... We're looking at a, we're looking at a, a, pecorine, a pecorino or painting as we... Pecorino as we crotonese with a couple right of pears on a, on a plate, and a couple of the tarali scaldati, the pugliese... Tarali scaldati. That How blessed are we that we are of a country of multiple tarals? <laughs> We're very blessed. Neapolitans have the, the large tarals with black pepper and almonds. You have the really small tarals that the kind of, I guess, taral divino that they're from Puglia. You have the scaldata. Uh, Daraos right from I guess it Calabria and Basilicata. Basilicata. Right, these, these were from like Puglia and Basilicata. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. So the, the Puglia side, Basilicata. Yeah. So there we are people of multiple Daraos. My cousins yeah. are Daral makers. In That's Basilicata. right. John comes from a family of Daral makers. We, we, we visited their factory. And it's, one of the cleanest places I've ever seen in my life, and about seven crucifixes over the factory. You could you could have performed you could have yeah. performed open heart surgery. Yes, you could. Yeah, I was very proud. <laughs> I've never in my life. I knew they were related to you when I saw how clean that. If place you're in was. the south of Italy and you see viola t- the terrazzo, those are that's my family in uh, in Basilicata. I'm very wonderful. proud of that. Yeah, I have a box that I'll never eat. It's just going to sit there, and, and then you, it can't go bad. And you could see that you. I mean, if you love crotonese cheese, you could see right off the bat it's it's, it's a wheel crotonese. My grandfather, Rufo, from Calabria, was a shepherd before he came here. And uh, the stories that I heard was that they used to make that cheese. Did they really? Yeah. 
Yeah. Some of the best cheese I ever had. I had I in Berbicaro. When I, love when I was cheese. in Berbicaro, they took me out to the, to the Campania to see the house where the Russo family would spend their time. And we came back for Sunday dinner, and we had to stop to let the herd of goats cross the road. And then when I sat down at dinner, we had fresh-made ricotta and fresh-made cheese from the shepherd. How good was that like cheese? That. It was the best I ever had. I, I love Italian food everywhere, and I love the cities that I've visited in Italy. I think Florence is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Rome is wonderful. Best eating I did was from Naples down south. 100% correct. Yes, and you're not going to find an argument at this table. No, there's no sure, argument yeah. here. Yeah. And you know, it's so fresh. That regret probably was hours old. At it, best. No, no doubt. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about the, these same products that we could all visualize and the knife, and we know it's the peach knife versus the bread knife, and, you know, this the theme of iconography here. And um, for those of you who don't know, I... I I went to art school growing John's up in high school. I had to say this for the for the. No, he's giving me the eye, but I gotta let this on air. John is one of the greatest graphic artists you're ever gonna meet. Maybe for Italian. And I'm not stuff. blowing him sunshine because he does stuff for me all the time. I the, do do a lot of pants. Right, he's like my personal that's, graphic. That's my artist. biggest pro bono. Right, every week he's getting sent over <laughs> do this, do that. Yeah. And I said to him, not only because it's free, because he does the best work. But I, uh, I. I do I do a lot of stuff digitally now, and I love logo and, and stuff like that. And when we were creating this show, part of the challenge for me was okay, you know, you need a brand and a logo. And I said, okay, it's the Italian American Power Hour. And I thought back, and I I, I encountered this at NIAF. You know, we we redid the logo package at NIAF when I was there, and it took a lot to sort of settle on what that would look like. What is an icon that is both specific enough that it invokes familiarity within the Italian American community of all of all uh, geographic backgrounds, but also known enough to the outside world that they look at it and see Italian American. I mean, every organization has two flags and every you know these crossed flags, and it's become a challenge for me. And so when we did the Power Hour, and I thought of the idea of a power movement and a clenched fist, I said, well, instead of a clenched fist, ours is of course the Malocchia horns, and that was my sort of Power Hour icon, but. I always came back to this conversation. It'd be interesting to open it up to you guys. Is there an icon that could satisfy all these needs for the Italian American community? We can't community? agree on a meatball recipe. That's true. We'll meatball. never agree on anything. We're going to agree on an yeah. icon. We can't even agree on a daral. Imagine if <laughs> we, we want to make a daral. We make our daral What's this the way. standard daral? We put fennel in. It. You don't put fennel in. But I wonder, you know. I have to tell you, you, you use the phrase Italian American community, and I know we've had this conversation before, but... I take a little bit of exception to the concept that there is a single Italian-American community. I think that there are numerous Italian-American communities and that we all share, we're like a big Venn diagram where we all share aspects of our culture and heritage. But if you go to St. Louis, you go to Buffalo or Rochester, you go to Newark, you go to Brooklyn, you're going to get a different... Uh, Providence, Rhode Island, when I was up there in college, was a wonderful place. Uh, Rhode, uh, Rhode Island's fair. If you're from Rhode Island, we love you. We love, that is I a, absolutely um, a very Italian uh, place. I, I, very, doesn't it feel like Jersey? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Very I, don't much know, so. I don't know if that's a compliment. The two but, most but, Italian states in the Union, aren't they? Rhode I, Island I, and New Jersey. I was maybe in Providence, and I said to myself, these people smell so familiar. They're like my own tribe. Yeah. Uh, They're like uh, Jersey Italian. It, it helped keep me sane when I was in college. I'd go down the hill, up the hill, on Federal Hill there. But having said all that, I think what we need to do is try to find something along the line because if we have any hope of taking the next generation which is going to be three generations removed from the Italian immigrants I mean I remember my grandfather vividly 
Uh, I remember sitting around the table and listening to them chatting away in Calabrese dialect and talking in Italian and all that. My kids know none of that. They are one half Italian American. They consider themselves Italian Americans with no disrespect to their other heritage as well. They also honor that. But they don't have the same perspective that I have at least. I think it's going to be up to us to try to find a rallying point or something that young people can get enthusiastic about. I think they have to come and want it. They have to look for it, right? So if they want it, we have it on the table. So my point is, if you have no interest, I can't convince you of any interest of it. The second thing I think is that we beat ourselves up a lot. And teaching over the years in a university setting in four different schools where I've seen like the 18 to 22-year-old demographic, what I've come to see is when you have classes with exchange students, they're so similar to the American students. The music they listen to, no matter where they come from in the world, how they dress, how they act, because you know um, we're dealing with a, a global generation where... Their common culture, because of social media and technology and the internet, is so much more interconnected than it's ever been in, in history. And I feel that we're beating ourselves up saying, well, you know, like, they're different. They're global. The same phenomenon is going on in Italy. It's just a globalized world. I do think we're in much better shape than we let on because we do have something that's appealing. We do have a product that sells. I just feel that how, it, how they're going to attach to it is yet to be seen. Because it's going to be the attachment to an ethnic culture from a globalized generation. And let me be, let me be clear. I view this as an opportunity, not as uh, something to be lamented. Because when you look at the course of history, for my mother and father's generation, the pressure to assimilate was huge. The assimilation never was complete within the house. As far as I could perceive, Italian families continued to maintain their Italian identity. Our kids are Americans no matter what, but they still recognize and appreciate the Italian in them. That gives us an opportunity. It's not that important anymore that your grandfather came from Calabria or Basilicata or Sicily. What's important is that you're the descendant of Italian immigrants. I th- but I think and so you have a commonality there that can be built upon if it's approached right. I disagree with you. And this is, I think the regional part means more now than ever. Because I agree with that. Yeah. I think the reason why regional connections are so important today is because now that people are three generations removed and they want to go back and find where they came from, and because there's a sexiness and a coolness to Italy that makes the Italy brand strong, they have the capacity today through the internet, if they don't know what their roots are, to look back and say, okay, I am from Verbicato, and to go to Verbicato. And to learn about Verbicato online and to read an article about it or to buy Rosetta's book. And I feel they can connect to the Italy that is their Italy, that village, that house. And if I had to make a prediction, John and I have had this conversation. The next generation, how they connect with Italy. We feel there's a much greater chance that they're going to connect with the micro Italy of their own personal experience as compared to the macro Italian American culture. Because the macro Italian American culture evolved because we needed each other. You know, we, we had to stick together with each other for a lot of, I guess, socio-political, mm-hmm. economic reasons. That's just my, my take on it. That's why, having come from a background where I was running one of the large organizations in the country for this, quote-unquote, Italian-American community as a young person, completely different generation than anybody else in the leadership of any of these organizations, I, I always said there was sort of multiple... Uh, factors to, to what our strategy was going to be going forward. One of them was, first and foremost, as you point out, uh, Steve, that the experience is so personal to everybody. So everybody experiences their Italianness, their Italianità in different ways, through different memories, through different inputs. 
the geographical differences from Italy, geographical differences here, where they settled, age differences, demographic differences. To, to be really honest, I think that that's why we, I know, and I think I can speak for Dolores, Anthony, and Rosella as well, that's why we do this show, because you know we get interactions from so many listeners. Um, we have a great group called The New Neighborhood. Uh, if you visit italianneighborhood.com, these are members who support our show and interact with us online on a regular basis in a, in a really interesting group. And we have these discussions, and I'm always fascinated by, A, how geographically spread out they are, B, where their families come from, and C, their age and gender. It's, it's such a unique slice representation of all different kinds of Italian-Americans. And, you know, somebody may attach this show because we're talking about art, and somebody may attach because we're talking about pepper recipes, and somebody about the peach knife, and some people write us and tell us they just like the cadence of how we talk, and that's familiar to them. And, you know, we get a lot of people from the podcast profession who will tell us your noise is a little cloudy, and then you get a lot of listeners who will say, keep eating walnuts and drinking homemade that, wine because it's familiar to us. <laughs> that, was, that was the great, you have to understand something, like, you hear us on air when everybody's polite and everything's censored, but we have many interesting off-air conversations. That could probably be our most popular if we could in good conscience air them. <laughs> and true. we had a big, we had a good time at, at Dolores' house at Christmas. That was the biggest eye-opener for me in this entire process because John's freaking out. It's the, it's the Sicilian in you, the perfect American. <laughs> John's freaking out because the wine is flowing. People are drinking more. The more they're drinking, the rowdier they're getting. We're cracking walnuts. If you heard the episode, you get it. And... John's like walking out of there. This is going to be a total disaster. It's going to be like the walnut. I got to be the moderator. Yeah, he's, right? he's, he's it's a mess, and it's people are cracking walnuts, and it's all this noise interference. And I, and we got so many positive responses. People, are like, you know, yeah. I felt that I was back at the family table in the basement again, yeah. hearing the nuts crack. You bet. So and it's so much I, of the experience. You know, the, the more we grow as a as a platform, and the more we can provide opportunities. You know, we had. Uh, gosh, eight or ten people from the new neighborhood came to visit us at Pat's Feast that he put on a couple of weeks ago in uh, at Holy Face Monastery. And it was so great to interact with them because they were from all over the place and they all had different experiences. And I said to myself, gosh, we, we've created this venue that people can attach to in different ways for different reasons through different um, sparks. And now they're actually coming together in, in, in real physical life around this project and I think that's a big hope for the future I didn't even say hope you know, you know if you I think, think that's, a it, big, that's a big opportunity if, if you think of it we've come kind of uh, 180 degrees see I, I don't think that you know going back to, to Pat's uh, comments I don't see it as an either or I think you, you actually identified where I think most of the opportunity lies certainly the upsurge of interest in genealogy and ancestry and stuff is testament to people's curiosity about where they came from and who they were I think we've come 180 degrees in your example of people showing up at the feast. I mean, two generations ago, three generations ago, that feast would have been exclusively for the parishioners of that church yep. and the people from that, that same town. town. Sure. And people from the outside, be they from Italy or whatever, were outsiders. Yeah. Nowadays, I think we all have a common experience. We're Americans first. But there's a commonality that I think didn't get honored back then that can be honored now. And it's taking that commonality and the richness of the heritage and putting them together is where you're going to find all that beauty. I have to say that a lot of the people who have commented to me on my paintings weren't necessarily from the same towns or regions that my 
Oh, absolutely. 100%. You're never going to get confidence from you. Right. What does it say? What did Jesus say in the gospel? No, 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 I've gotten confidence. No, I mean, no, prophet's always rejected in his own country. It's your own. But I love that. Thankfully, that's not true. You know, I'm glad. My my country beats me up all the time. We We try to be aware that we're like, you know, we, we are from a very limited geographic area, all of us. We try to go to different places and, and learn about different Italian-American communities. But, you know, we have these discussions in the new neighborhood, and we'll talk about our Easter pie recipes. And we're learning and spurring conversation. Who, who put uh, grain in their Yeah, I was pie shocked. All the, all the, yeah. It seems to be like a Massachusetts and circle of, gra- of, a, of a savory... Grain pie, grain pie, which is and a huge was lesson like, for us. That was like that, like hit the, the front of our paper. But again, it's, 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 it's all got those underlying similarities. But I, I, I love that. I don't worry. I feel this way about us as a, number one. The world is always evolving, and things come and go. And but one thing is that the product we're selling, the Italian culture, if they don't want, I mean, we have the Cadillac. If they don't yeah, want it, true. you know, uh, it's their <laughs> loss. And I think that. The, the foundation of us entirely as a, as a culture, I mean, you keep talking about your paintings, it keeps going back to family, right? So everything that we do, either the food, the sitting around eating, it all, it's all based on the, the tightness of the southern, uh, the Italian family, especially in the south of Italy. And I think that in a world of isolation and broken families and broken cultures and broken communities, the Italian family is a beacon that a lot of these people are looking for. I agree. But I just want to bring one more thing up. Another piece of art that Steve did was the beautiful painting of the accordionist at the Feast of Madame du Monde from yeah. last year. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. stunning. Yeah. Well, that was such a, a beautiful... First of all, the feast was beautiful. I apologize that I was not able to go this year. But um, th- this fellow walking around playing this beautiful accordion was an image that I simply could not get out of my mind. And... I, he let me snap a couple of photos. Oh, it was, it was, it. It was fantastic. It was, like, it was like the artistic Kodak. Do you yeah, always paint I, from photos? No. 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 I, I, matter of fact, kind of prefer not to. If I do paint from photos, I try to get four or five different photos from different perspectives so that I'm not just copying the photo. Mm. Once, once the camera came along, there's no reason to have to do that anymore. You know? Yeah. But, but this guy was such a, I'll use the word, icon. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, Absolutely you know, fantastic. It was so beautiful. It was like a Fellini and yet film. He, he just kind of came out of nowhere. It was very that. much Absolutely. like a Fellini film. It was it, it was very much like Amar Cord. And you know what was interesting was he was playing this beautiful music, and I looked at his face, and he looked like he was a little angry. And I was trying to figure that out. Like what was it? He wasn't angry. He was focused. He was paying attention to what he was doing. Because that was his art. Because yeah. that was his art. That yeah. was his art. That right. was Playing his the art. the accordion was his art. And the accordion itself was a work of art. We'll have to say I don't think I did it total justice in the painting. I think the accordion was much more beautiful than what I painted. But that was just one of those images that I couldn't let go of. And so it translated itself into a painting. And, you know, hopefully there'll be lots more like that. Yeah, certainly hope so. I mean, they've got, they're beautiful as, as art. They're beautiful as our culture, as sociology, as anthropology. And, and your story is beautiful. I should mention that one of the other artists in the show, Bob Nicosia, um, is from a large extended Italian-American family, uh, grew up in Bloomfield, New Jersey, near the Newark border. And he and I were sharing some stories about him growing up in a very large extended family, you know, 40-plus cousins and the whole nine yards. And he just discovered painting. He was a very successful executive in the insurance industry. He mm. just discovered painting. Turns out he's a very talented and beautiful uh, painter. 
but he and I sort of uh, hit it off, and I had it in my head to paint a picture of figs. One of my paintings you'll see has the prosciutto with the figs. Yes. Well, I love figs, and so I did the grapes and stuff. I said, well, what do I need to do next? And figs were in my mind. Mm. And I have this habit sometimes of when I finish a painting, I'll put the brush down and procrastinate a bit until it incubates and gets ready. And so I'm, I'm forming the idea of painting these figs, and I go to a breakfast with Bob and the other two artists. We're talking, and Bob said to me, you know, your paintings really give me a warm feeling. They bring back nice memories for me, which, which is the nicest compliment you can give Absolutely, me. Absolutely, yeah. And then he said... I'm going to invite you out to my place to paint my fig trees. The hair on the back of my head stood up because I had my canvas on the on the easel, ready to go home and start my painting of figs. Mm. He then sent me some photographs of his fig trees and of some of the figs that he grows, and so I've incorporated those into my That's awesome. painting. Will that be but at there the was show? That, the, the painting of the figs will not be, but it will be on my website as soon as it's finished. It's, That's it's, great. It's oh, it's in process. I, I worked on it this morning before I came here. I can't so, wait to see that. Why, yeah. why don't you give us some details about the show? Yeah, tell us the about show. the show. Tell about okay. the show. So, so now, there's, there's, the show. There, now we know two Italian-American artists that you can uh, you can come out and see. Yes, no. Uh, and, and the other artists, by the way, even though they're not Italian-American, are wonderful artists. Um, the show is entitled And Then There Was Paint uh, and basically all four of the artists in the show are people who have had successful careers in other endeavors and then either discovered or rediscovered painting at a later stage in their lives it's put on under the auspices of an artist cooperative group called Studio Montclair which is a wonderful uh, organization for artists by artists and they have a, there's a building that they call the Incubator Space at Academy Square. It's at 33 Plymouth Street in Montclair, New Jersey. And basically, it is an office building that is dedicated to promoting the arts. So the art show gets hung, basically, in the hallways and stairwells of the building. There's a courtyard in the back. The show runs from June 12th through August 19th. There's a reception on Wednesday, June 19th from 6 to 8 p.m. And I would love it if somebody would come up to me and say, hey, I heard about this on the podcast. Uh, we hope they will. Yeah, me too. Yeah. That, that would, would be, be great. If you're in the area and uh, you want to be able to interact and meet Steve and, uh, and interact with these works, that's a great way to do it. If you're from uh, the other parts of the country or other parts of the world and listening to this, you can see all of Steve's work on his website, uh, stevemartworks.com, as we mentioned before. And uh, I know from our conversation in the Lost episode, they can they the can lost purchase episode. the Lost the great episode. Lost yeah. episode. They can purchase prints, and I think now you've made some uh, some other. There are there are a couple of paintings that I might have the original painting offered for sale. For the most part, I'm selling G clay prints, but I'm running out of wall space for myself, <laughs> so I might end up selling some of my originals as well. And are you are you selling any kind of stationary stuff yet? No, no, you're not doing cards. No, I haven't gotten no. to that. That'd be a great yet. birthday card, the peppers out Yeah, front. I think that's a great birthday. Well, I said the bacala is the best Italian-American Christmas card you could ask for. You know, Happy birthday, you bacala. Bon Natal. Here's the bacala salad. But go out. Go I out. can have those made if you want to place an order. I think, I, think we could, I think we could use them. That'd definitely be my gift, my Christmas card to everybody. Go out and support Steve. Support Steve's artwork. We have to support each other as a community. If you need to buy a gift, go out and get it because we're only going to grow this by supporting each other and by celebrating who we are and supporting people like Steve who are turning their Italian-American dreams into a reality. 
Absolutely. Thank and it's going to so invoke much. a lot. Uh, it's going it's to make you feel great. It really is. Well, Steve, thanks for coming back and Thank giving us a round two. Take two. two. Take two. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to very much preserve this sound, uh, this audio, before we go. Pat, thanks for having us out here in uh, the Garden State and, and hosting us. This has been a really great pleasure for me to get to spend some time with you, Steve, and get to see your take on our Italian-American experience. This is some amazing artwork, and I hope everybody will go out there and check out Steve's website, buy some pieces, put them in your home, and let them inspire you like they inspire us. So from all of us here at the Italian-American Power Hour, thanks for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you next time. Thanks, everybody. See that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great See that you're born an Italiano